Hey, podcast listeners, Mara Davis here. Here's an exclusive preview episode of the new series, Elizabeth the First. It's the new podcast from Imperative Entertainment about a truly remarkable woman, Elizabeth Taylor the very first influencer. Katy Perry is such a fan. She is hosting this series and you will learn so much about this legend. If you love this preview, there's nearly 10 hours of audio from the full series available where you can binge right now. Just search Elizabeth the First on any podcast platform or click the link in the description of this episode. But let's begin your preview right now. This is Elizabeth Taylor singing Chitty Bitty Bin. That was Elizabeth at age eight. The audio you're hearing is one of her earliest known recordings, never shared with the public, and it gives us the earliest sense of her spirit and artistry. She was born in England in 1932. We had a house in London, and my father was a very prosperous uh, art dealer, had a wonderful gallery on Old Bond Street, and we had a lovely house in... uh, Hampstead. So it was like being in the country, although you were in the heart of London. And then we had a country home that was on my uh, godfather's estate in Kent. And I rode bareback. That was my favorite. And I just took off. And my parents trusted me enough. I was a very good rider. And I'd go riding around the property around all the lakes that were in that area, Kent. My name is Tim Mendelson, and I am a trustee for Elizabeth Taylor's estate, where I'm also an officer of the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. And we work on the brand and the storytelling and the archive. This is all Elizabeth Taylor world. It's a very big world. I mean, her story is just so epic with so many twists and turns. There's this incredible amount of story there because unlike a lot of other kind of iconic people on her level, Elvis Presley or Judy Garland or Princess Diana or Marilyn, uh, you know, they didn't live long lives. And Elizabeth lived a complete life. So she was able to have every stage of it. And she has a huge family, you know, who I know really well from all my years of working for her directly. I still work for her. And I mean, that's definitely how I consider my job. She had eight marriages. Those are all chapters. It doesn't define her life, but it it does break it up into parts. I mean, her mother explained to her when she was a little girl. I mean, Elizabeth told me this. She said, you're a nice looking girl. You have lovely eyes, but it's what's behind the eyes. It's what's in your heart that's going to make you truly beautiful. And Elizabeth was a stunning little girl. In England, the Taylors worked among London's high society set. 
from artists to members of parliament, they were clients and friends. In 1939, with a world war at hand, Elizabeth's parents, Francis and Sarah, returned to the States on the advice of Prime Minister Chamberlain. Initially, they landed on Sarah's family farm in Pasadena, California. What we know about Elizabeth's earliest years comes from both the memories that she shared as an adult and the childhood items she left behind, some in her own impeccable handwriting. All of it's preserved in the Elizabeth Taylor Archive. So I'm Mitch Erzinger, and I'm the archivist for uh, the Elizabeth Taylor Archive and House of Taylor. I started it there in 2015, and I was brought in by uh, Charlie Shipes. He put together a team to start working on cataloging and digitizing their collection of photographs. And we worked on that for the better part of a year. And once we started winding that down, um, getting close to 10,000 photographs digitized and individually cataloged in our database, we started to look at expanding it, expanding the scope to the papers, the personal papers, which ended up including over 600 banker's boxes uh, in storage that we're still going through. And we haven't even gotten into touching on the personal effects, things like the thousands of, of books that she had in her collection, the over 60 full rolling racks of uh, wardrobe items, fashion. Elizabeth had a huge life uh, in every sense, and that is reflected in the archive and what we have. The papers include correspondence going back to her childhood. Uh, her mother kept things. I mean, we, we always say like her mother was almost like her first archivist because thanks to her, we have all of these gems from her childhood that we wouldn't have had otherwise, like um, little drawings that she would draw and give to her, her mother, or little notes and Valentine's Day cards that she would give to her parents or her brother to essays that she wrote as a student at the MGM school. When I look at some of these letters and notes that she wrote to, to her mother, for example, there's this um, sense of honesty and respect that was a little surprising to see so, so early on that apologizing for uh, going to bed 10 minutes later than you know, mother had had suggested or had her had asked her to because she she needed to wash her her face or just these profound expressions uh, of love that oh mommy and daddy dear I I love you so so much with all my heart um, just so darling and and full of love at such an early age. After fleeing England for the outskirts of Los Angeles, Francis Taylor needed to establish himself. For an art dealer of his caliber, there was only one place that paralleled Bond Street in London. Elizabeth's father opened a gallery in the historic Beverly Hills Hotel, and the Taylors settled in Beverly Hills. It was there, in the playground of Hollywood's most powerful, that Sarah's daughter with the violet eyes, charming accent, and impeccable manners caught everyone's attention. My name is Jill Sherry Robinson. And I'm um, delighted to talk to you about one of my most favorite people in the whole world, Elizabeth Taylor, and the unique fortitude and honor of her character. She was a rare and magnificent person. 
And I love telling these Hollywood stories. She's not a Hollywood story. She's, it's a story of a great consequential woman, you know, a really magnetic presence that gave something special to every film she made and to every room she walked in. Everywhere, she was the immediate center of the room. And without any sort of awareness, she wasn't conscious, I am Elizabeth and I am here. She was, I'm just this beautiful work of art. It was a different thing. It was a different thing. She was particularly special because, first of all, she was so astonishingly beautiful. I mean, nobody had those eyes. They were like translucent royal blue and just exquisite. And she was, she was really sweet. Yes, Elizabeth was beautiful, a striking child. But it was something else within her that captured people's attention. She was unique, a little British girl, who had the intellect and fortitude to hold her own with adults. And the Taylor's clients at the gallery could not help but suggest to Sarah that she should take her daughter on auditions. Elizabeth was clearly a star. She was a star. She was in charge. She was not a little girl. Some of the others, you know, were little girls. And, and she didn't get preyed upon by bullies and stuff or people who were jealous because they knew that there was just no, you know, she was like Queen Elizabeth. And in those days, this was the time when Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret Rose were the thing that everybody was talking about. And so Elizabeth was our queen, our little queen. And it was really cool. Before marrying Elizabeth's father, Sarah was an actress on Broadway. She used the stage name Sarah Southern and continued to go by it for the rest of her life. But perhaps because she was an actress, Sarah was initially hesitant to take the advice of their new social set and parade Elizabeth through an audition circuit. Then war broke out all over Europe. A return to England was unthinkable. Sarah considered the idea that acting could help her special, unique child find a place of her own in her new homeland. The door opened serendipitously, thanks to a friend of Elizabeth's father. My father was an air raid warden, and Sam Marks, who was a fellow air raid warden on the next block and there was a park for a little English girl and naturally they had started at the beginning and she was that high and at the end of the film she was that high so they desperately had to find a child an English child that was you know the right height And I fell into that category. Sarah took her daughter onto her first studio lot. It's unclear if either one, mother or daughter, had any idea the world that they were about to step into. By the 1930s, Hollywood, the cultural and economic son of the entertainment universe, had grown into a multi-billion dollar American industry. Entertainment was a titan in a transforming economy. The industrial age of steel and textile dominance gave way to a modern era of services and consumer products, like movies. It was a golden age of cinema, and film studios were the planets that orbited the sun. Paramount, RKO, Fox, Warner Brothers, and Lowe's Incorporated, which owned the crown jewel of them all, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM. MGM was founded and run by the infamous entertainment mogul, L.B. Mayer. In this world, he was Zeus. 
He was a colorful, sullen, but also magnetic presence. He had to be in charge of everything. It was his studio. And Dad went to work for him for a while. And they got along really well because they loved reading and they loved literature. I don't think L.B. Mayer read a lot of books, maybe, ever. And there, there was a sense throughout it. There was, they were like, it was like a miniature United States, Hollywood, where everybody had their own country, you know, their own territory. And that was theirs. And God help you if you were going to have a premiere at somebody else's favorite theater. You know, that wouldn't work. And it was, it was so organized and so, it was so real and it felt like we were the capital of everything. It felt, it felt like everybody knew about it. And we also knew that the only street that we'd like to drive on was Sunset Boulevard. The magic came from what is known as the studio system, where actors were property and executives were gods. When L.B. Mayer put Elizabeth Taylor under a seven-year contract in 1943, she was his. She belonged literally to his studio, and she was only 11 years old. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Her life was at the studio. Her school was at the studio. So she didn't have your typical childhood or adolescence where you go to school and you hang out with your friends, you go out and you play. Um, She was working at the studio. She was going to school at the studio. She made friends there, of course, but outside of that world, um, I guess it was very insular. My father, Dory Sherry, was the only writer to ever run a studio, which was a remarkable achievement. Yes. And he he loved it, and he did not regard anyone as merchandise. He knew that these were artists that he was working with. And it was MGM Studio, and I was so glad when he told me. I remember when I was little, and he came home at some point, and he said, well, I've changed the studio, he was telling my mother, and it's now going to be MGM that I'll be working for. And Jill will be really happy because she loves lions. And I said, well, maybe you could get me a lion. And he got me a stuffed lion. Dory Sherry ran MGM's film department for L.B. Mayer. His daughter, Jill, was one of Elizabeth's first friends. I think I met her when I was in the wardrobe department because I wanted to be a costume designer for the theater. And so after school, I would get our governess to drop me off at the studio. And my father would always find out that I was there. And I was always wearing costumes. And I think the first time I met her, that it was a Western movie, Cowboy, and, she, and it was lavender, and it had bugle bead fringes, and it was just divine. And so after they finished the shoot and everything, they let me have the costume. And I was wearing it, and Elizabeth liked it very much. She said, that's really great. And I said, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you like it. And it was, it made me feel, yeah, I could do that. You know, it was, 
she didn't, she knew who she should pay attention to a little. And because my dad was a big deal at the studio at that time, and he was gentle, and the stars loved him because he didn't treat them like merchandise. People were scared. Nobody got away with anything. And they had, that were almost like, not nursery schools, but little schools for the kids. Mostly we didn't play with kids from other studios. And then there was a lot of class system there. LB would be particularly vicious and crazy and bossy with the stars. And my father, I always knew when dad had had a war with LB Mayer because we'd be home from school and he'd come home early and he'd run upstairs and throw up. My dad was often sick. I mean, literally, LB made him sick to his stomach. Jill's father may have known in his heart that the actors under contract at MGM were artists, not products. But on paper, they were owned. Their lives were completely controlled by the studio, especially child actors like Elizabeth. The actors, the talent was chattel back then. They didn't have rights. The studio took over their lives. Tim Mendelson worked with Elizabeth as her executive secretary for over 20 years. Elizabeth chose the secretary title not to designate an old-fashioned assistant, but to signify the role of a chief executive's cabinet. She was once married to the former secretary of the Navy, after all. Despite the formality of Tim's position, their relationship was much closer than the job title indicates. Tim was a close confidant and dear friend of Elizabeth's. And what they shared and navigated together was both the public's experience and the behind-the-curtain life of the biggest star in the world. I'm never going to feel like she's not here, and I'd better be doing the right thing. And I wouldn't even be talking about her, except that she's not here to talk for herself. Because when she was alive, she did not want people to speak for her. But she's not here now to speak for herself being as close to her as I was, like, I have to do that. And I, I, I get that. And I'm not uncomfortable with it anymore. But it was a hard decision to make, to start to talk. Uh, in my formative years, I was very much dominated by my family. Her mother was very controlling, and it's not a surprise that she had probably one of the biggest stage mothers of all time. I mean, her mother was with her always, every day. She, had, she was paid by the studio to watch Elizabeth and take care of Elizabeth and bring her to the set every day, bring her to the studio every day and take her home every day and watch her virginity. I mean, that was Sarah, I'm sure. And not, I don't know if the studio said that that had to be done, but Sarah watched her like a hawk. She was absolutely a virgin when she got married. But through all of this, Elizabeth is learning her value. In many cases... Most of the executives uh, treated stars like merchandise. They were the contract players. She was special. She, was, she knew she was special. There was no question about that. In L.A., in those days, if you were British, you got a whole different treatment. The other stars were mostly young girls, you know, from like regular schools and all that sort of stuff, and they didn't have the little boys. They didn't have the elegance of the voice. And she had a, a, an assurance within her that only people who are really great stars have. And she, she had this, this pride. My father used to, we had a projection room. And then my father would say, no, 
no, no motor, no motor, nothing, not interesting. And I was grateful that none of them were ever there to hear that. But when she came, you know, she had that regal auteur. That was, that was it. And she had it all the time. She could hold an audience. She could hold anything. And people loved her. And yet she didn't disappear within herself. She knew she was beautiful and it didn't embarrass her. It didn't, the difference between Elizabeth and everybody else is everybody else would be embarrassed or uncomfortable about the being different because kids don't want to be different. She knew she was different and it was very special. And she knew that she had command and she could do, she could turn it on, but she could turn it off. She, she really didn't want to, um, you know, she wasn't a kid that you'd say, come over and let's go bike riding or something. She was, she was a different kind of animal. And she was, um, she didn't circulate with the particular kids that I circulated with because she was always working. There wasn't a time that she wasn't being fitted or working on something or helping someone she cared for, another star or someone, to be not frightened about what was going on or to really study another way of maybe saying a line that she didn't like. I think Elizabeth had so much confidence and an interior sense of glamour. She didn't have to be, you know, she'd be made up, but she didn't have to be made up. She really just had it. And the accent was a big part of it. And the fact that she had the name of the Queen of England, or the person who was going to be the Queen of England. And that was a big deal. And she, she kind of got along with Shirley Temple, but not much, because Shirley wasn't interesting to talk to. Elizabeth's presence and talent soon landed the film roles that exposed her to audiences across America. Beverly Hills was right. Elizabeth was a star. As a child actor, she now had her own money. Her parents managed it for her, but she had an allowance to spend on her own. And that is how two of Elizabeth's most special traits were first expressed. Her generous spirit and her love of jewelry. As those letters and little notes from the archive show us, Elizabeth loved her parents. She wanted to do something special for her mother on Mother's Day, so... Elizabeth's father had an art gallery at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And Elizabeth would hang out there sometimes, uh, you know, after she got home from the studio. She'd already made National Velvet. And she liked to peek into the stores and see. And one day she saw this brooch that she fell in love with. And she wanted to buy it for her mother. And so she got 25 cents a, a week allowance. When she went in to, 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 to look at the brooch, she talked to the salesperson and she said, I want to get this for my mother, but I don't have the money yet. Can I pay it on layaway, little by little, because I got to get this for my mom. And when Elizabeth told this story decades later, she had that little girl-like quality of how excited she was to still to buy this brooch for her mom, even after her mom had passed. You know, it was just this innocent, childlike, need to do something great for somebody and something with so much love. And so the lady of the store said, okay, I will hold this for you. 
and I will let you pay it as you can. I won't sell it to anyone else. And as a matter of fact, I'll take it out of the window. And so Elizabeth went on and managed to save the money, which was $25. She was so proud of herself. And she bought it for her mom and they wrapped it up. And she actually went to her dad's art gallery and said, Dad, this is a surprise, but she kept it a secret. And, you know, she didn't want it. She wanted it to be a surprise. She didn't want anyone to know. So it was like something she could hold within herself for a period of time to just feel the excitement of, of doing this. And so she brought it to her mom. Her mom was obviously thrilled. And when Sarah Elizabeth's mom died, she left it back to Elizabeth. And we sold it. So it cost $25 originally. It was sold in Elizabeth's jewelry auction at Christie's in 2011 for $75,000. That was her first time negotiating a deal. And it was her first jewelry purchase. And it was a gift for her mom. That story illustrates yet another unique characteristic of our first influencer. Elizabeth had a mind for business. She could cut a deal. But it was her acting, her artistry, that would actually pave the way for her eventual success as a businesswoman. Through her career as an artist, she would learn how to harness herself as a commodity. And just like the influencers of today, the journey for learning that meant she would first have to build her following. Lassie was one of her first big pictures, and the budget was $400,000. The picture made $4 million which was, in those days was a very, very big deal. And it was all because of Elizabeth. I mean, Lassie was adorable too, but she was just phenomenal. The success of Lassie was a breakout moment for Elizabeth at MGM. And it helped position her at the studio for a star-making role, National Velvet. It, it was like magic. I could live out every young girl's fantasy. You know, playing with dogs, uh, doing National Velvet was my life. Pounder Berman, the producer, called me into his office. And I was always a very small child. And he said, Elizabeth, you're just too small. And he said, I'm going to measure you on my wall. And he said, if you can grow three inches, the role is yours. I said, all right, Mr. Berman, I'll be back in three months. And I came back in three months, and I had grown three inches. I willed myself to grow. I'm very, a very determined person. (laughs) I think that's why I'm still alive. I chose the horse, which was a real, in real life, a total renegade. And I tamed him. And the studio bought him uh, on my recommendation because nobody else could ride him. And at the end of the film, they gave him to me. When she was younger, her real independence came from riding horses. That was her time where no one was watching her or controlling her and she could ride free and she had this incredible connection with animals. I mean, she was respectful to them and she loved them and she took care of them. And so that was her only real freedom when she was a little, when she was young. 
I loved writing. I loved being introspective. I, I loved the fantasy world that I was thrown into, and I could separate it from reality. That's probably why I rode so much. I, I would get away, and it was me and the animal, and I'd commute with nature, and that way, I could hold onto myself. Elizabeth's love of family and of her horses was never more apparent than when she wrote this school essay in 1948 at the age of 16. I love my parents because they're the kindest, most wonderful parents a girl could have. We do everything together as a family should. They hardly go anywhere without my brother and me. You should see the funny sight we make when we go horseback riding or bicycling, all four of us, with the three dogs happily yipping and yiping close behind. And I'm so lucky that both Mommy and Daddy love animals and all my pets as much as I do. Even as a child, Elizabeth had the ability to clearly express herself, what she loved, her passions. At this age, it was family, horses, and all animals. The girl from the English countryside simply loved the natural world. Although still that girl in spirit, Elizabeth was now gaining fame and making serious money for the studio. MGM would renew and up her contract two more times, in 1946 and later in 1952. L.B. Mayer made sure he maintained complete control over the girl becoming his biggest star. As a child, Elizabeth didn't much notice or care. National Velvet and Lassie had brought her joy. But life changed after National Velvet for Elizabeth, not only because she was now one of MGM's biggest stars, but because she was changing. Time, that singular force of nature that none of us can stop. The little girl with more fortitude and composure than most adults was growing up. 